So Money episode 968, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host Alexandra Stockwell. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. It is almost Thanksgiving, sort of, you know, it's about a week till Thanksgiving. And uh, I'm excited. We're about to hop on a flight tomorrow to the West Coast to see my family. As a lot of you know, my family lives out by the Bay Area. It's been a while since I've flown with both of my kids uh, cross country, five and two. So say a little prayer for me and my husband. We hope all goes smoothly. Got all of our little tricks including snacks and devices. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, screen time. But you know what? It's how you just got to gotta roll with it um, <laughs> when you're 30,000 feet above the air and you don't really have a lot of other options. I hope everybody is gearing up for a nice festive Thanksgiving, however you celebrate it. This week, we had some pretty uh, incredible interviews, including a conversation with Karen Kahn on Wednesday. Karen is the founder of I Fund Women. If you're an entrepreneur out there, a female founder, and you are looking for early stage seed money, check out I Fund Women. It's this really innovative way that she's, you know, she's going about it. It's social crowdfunding for female founders. And Karen, Karen Kahn is just an icon. I mean, she's a woman who started out at Google in the early days, did very well there financially, and moved her way up through the tech world. And now she's an entrepreneur and talks a lot about you know how she built her wealth. It's time to head over to the iTunes section now to select this week's review. We've surpassed a thousand reviews. Thank you, everybody, for contributing. And I'm just going to keep on encouraging you to do so and provide one free 15-minute money session every week with someone who has left a review. And this time, we're going to say thank you to Sarah Elizabeth Graves, who left a review on November 7th, calling the show engaging and informative. So Sarah, get in touch. Thank you so much for your pretty lengthy review. Um, she says that she is actually a person finance writer. And this is one of her favorite podcasts. So that really means a lot to me because you are a pro. And if you're liking this show, that means I hopefully am doing something right. So I appreciate it, Sarah. Get in touch. Uh, you can email me, farnoosh at farnoosh.tv. You can also reach me on Instagram, direct message me there. Let me know. Looking forward to connecting with you, my fellow personal finance writer friend, and um, talking money uh, on our personal jam session. All right, it's Ask Farnoosh time, and I'm so, I'm so excited to introduce our co-host today. It's not just solo today. I have a very exceptional co-host. Her name is Alexandra Stockwell. She is a relationship and intimacy expert known as the Relationship Catalyst. And she's got an upcoming book called Uncompromising Intimacy. And she's also a friend. She has uh, joined me and Susie Moore at our workshop called Pitch Please. Sometimes you've heard me talk about this media workshop that I host. And I was so delighted to hear that she's a listener of So Money and wanted to co-host. So Alexandra, welcome to So Money. How are you? I'm well, and I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Farnish. 
Oh, this is going to be fun. It's always nice to have somebody with a different background on the show. You coming from the world of, um, well, you are an MD physician turned relationship and intimacy expert. You're known as the relationship catalyst. So what is, what, how are you catalyzing relationships? Tell me everything. Everything. All well, you know, in a minute, like 30 seconds. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm really devoted to working with couples who love one another. And from the outside, everything looks good. But on the inside, they're not as satisfied as they want to be. And so I teach couples how to have more emotional intimacy and sensual passion, largely because I think that is a way to change the world. If everybody were really satisfied and fulfilled in their most intimate relationships, I think the ripple effect would be tremendous. So that's my contribution to making the world a better place. And your forthcoming book is called Uncompromising Intimacy. Tell us about that. When can we look forward to it? Yeah. So Uncompromising Intimacy, I think I'll just talk about the title and that will tell you a lot. The most frequent advice given when it comes to relationships is you need to learn to compromise or um, if you want a good marriage, compromise is the key to a good marriage, something like that. And I believe the exact opposite. I think a really fulfilling marriage or partnership is contingent on bringing all of who you are to the relationship, which means you need to accept who you are and also really accept who your partner is and vice versa. And that when you bring all of who you are to the relationship, then no matter what arises, you can learn, you can use it to create more connection. And I think compromise leads to, uh, the very, very common circumstance of, re- of toleration relationships where people basically are living conflict-free and passion-free. Toleration. Is it toleration-free? Well, conflict-free and passion-free, which I describe as the toleration relationship. In other words, it's a relationship with a foundation of tolerating rather than a willingness to really do the work to be who you really are in that relationship because that's what makes it juicy. Yes. And I, I learned something very profound about you and your marriage. And we'll get to the questions in a minute, but I thought this was such a fascinating story. I mean, speaking about you know, being um, on the same page with your partner, you know, as you know, money can be a big source of contention in relationships. And I learned that in your marriage, you and your husband found yourselves not too long ago, about 10 years ago, with about $290,000 in personal debt. This was a result of a perfect storm, you called it, a failed business, the drop in the housing market, being conned by a spiritual teacher who is now in prison. How did the two of you work together on this piece in the relationship? Because this is, for some couples, could spell a lot more disaster, which is divorce, right? Because money creates a rift in relationships and especially debt. So how did you, the two of you communicate over this and work through it? Well, I think what we did first, which is pretty common, is pretend it wasn't happening. And happily in our situation, that didn't last for very long. And once we were clear that this was happening, it became our mutual priority to address it. And at the time, we were living just north of Boston, and 
we moved with our family. Three of our four children were born by that time. And so the five of us moved to rural Kansas, where my husband is also a physician. And in Massachusetts, there's high supply of family doctors compared to the demand. And in the rural parts in the middle of the country, there's a huge need and a small supply. So he went from being at the low end of the bell curve for salaries for family doctors. When we moved to rural Kansas, he shifted to being at the upper end of the bell curve for compensation for family doctors. And so we decided to leave our families, the school my children attended, really just our family, friends, everything in order to handle this because it was only going to get worse unless we made a very significant change. So we moved to rural Kansas and I thought it would take us about five years to pay it back. We were not in the habit of being in debt. We'd only had uh, mortgage and educational loans, which had already been paid off by the time all of this happened. It took about 18 months within this perfect storm to create the almost $300,000 of personal debt. And so I thought it would take five years of carefully managing things. And we actually paid it off in two years because we lived in rural Kansas where there wasn't really anything Mm -hmm. to spend money on. And we just lived as though we had a salary that was all about a fifth of what it actually was so that we could use all of the other funds to pay it back. And then we left rural Kansas two years later. They say you have to get uncomfortable sometimes to get out of a financial rut quickly. You can't just keep your status quo. And that's that, that's a great story. I mean. And it made us stronger. Yeah. You know, as, as soon as it was clear that each of us was dedicated to handling this, it was like one plus one was a lot more than two in terms of the energy and the creativity and it it's really great for a relationship to problem solve from the position of being on the same team, which is what we experienced. Incredible. Well, we actually have a first question here from a woman who uh, writes in about not a problem in her relationship, but it relates back to you know her, she and her husband's financial goals. And so Shelby writes that uh, she and her husband uh, have fallen into the trap of keeping up with the Joneses. I think we can all relate to some extent with that. She says, our best friends that we do everything with have rapidly made more and more money by being successful business owners over the last five years, and we have not grown our money as fast. My number one priority is to pay off our debt. In order for us to do that, we have to start saying no to certain things we do with our friends. And so her question is, how do we communicate to them that we can't afford to do all of these things right now without telling them that we are broke? And you know, going back to your your circumstance, Alexandra, I, I would I would think that there were some things that you had to say no to and that socially it might have been a little awkward as you and your family were and during those 18 months, moving to Kansas, all the things, changing your life. That must have been, um, I don't know, how would you describe it? A little uh, different than what your friends were doing? <laughs> For sure. And we... It was actually very mysterious. People couldn't comprehend why we were moving to Kansas. And we did not say it was because we were in dire circumstances financially. We didn't say that. We said, um, it's time for a change. We used a lot of euphemisms, but I don't think that that would work so well for 
Shelby because she and she's not leaving. (laughs) She's not leaving. There's going to be ongoing contact. Right. And so if she goes someone in your practice, who's like, I got to talk to my, my husband, I need to first get on the same page, right. About this and make sure that we're getting our narrative right. And if these are friends that they like and they want to keep and that they trust, I think that they need to just maybe be a little honest. I think there's room for honesty here. Yeah. I think the important thing is that Shelby and her husband are on the same page and that's probably going to mean getting vulnerable with one another because being broke probably means something different to her than to him. And they need to just really get clear and get on the same team. But then when it comes to talking with the friends, I think there's an option which includes being honest and an option which includes not being honest, quite frankly. So being honest would mean just saying that we're not as far along as we wanted to be and then propose low-cost fun things to do together. So maybe um, have them over for dinner instead of going out to a nice restaurant. Or if you go on vacation together, suggest camping instead of going to a luxury resort. In other words, don't just share the problem with your friends, but also make some suggestions that will allow the friendship to continue to thrive. The way of approaching it, which I would call not being honest, it's not outright lying, but if it's not comfortable to just say, we're really having financial difficulties, the alternative is to say, we're not going to be spending the way we have because we're saving for a vacation home or we're mm-hmm. saving for a children's college fund if you have, if Shelby has children or mm-hmm. something that no one's going to have any judgment about and it's just going to kind of put all of that behind a safe screen and then you're not getting into the particularities financially. But if you do decide to do that, Shelby, and say, you know, we're saving for retirement or whatever it is you choose to say that you feel good about, then I suggest you still go ahead and propose the lower cost fun things that all of you can do together. And the one thing that I would add is that it's going to be really important to be really clean in communicating it because the risk is that either your friends feel sorry for you and that's going to be uncomfortable for them to be around or you say it in such a way that they might feel badly about their wealth. And if either of those things happen, that's not going to be good for the friendship. So it's super important to make the communication cleanly, whatever it is that you decide to say. That's really a great point. And I do, I prefer, I like what you said about framing this in this, in the way of, you know, sharing your goals, you know, um, I think it's you're both you're all adults. It's it's no secret that everybody's got different goals and and it's not about you having more money than me. Well, it is a little bit, but really at the end of the day it's about how you're able to spend your money and is it really lining up with your values? Is one of your values to go into debt to you know to go island hopping with your friends? No. One of your hopes and goals is to, you know, live within your means and I think phrasing it as like, these are, we're we're hitting these, we have these different goals this year. This is, you know, this doesn't follow within our budget because we have these goals. I think I like that narrative a lot because it kind of shows that 
it, it wouldn't, I don't think it would put your friends in a place of feeling bad for you. Instead, maybe really supportive of like, okay, well, that's great. You know, we didn't know that you wanted to buy a house. We didn't know that you wanted to, you know, do these things. And I think it puts it in context and doesn't make it uncomfortable because you're right, Alexander. I think it can, it can go the other way if you're not careful with your words. Yeah. And there's a lot of hope for a wonderful ongoing friendship mm-hmm. if this communication is made with care and then everyone can feel good continuing to spend time together. All right, Shelby, thanks so much for your question. Great question. Beth is, ad- is asking about um, whether or not I ever discussed financial literacy on the show. And the answer is yes, Beth, I have discussed this from time to time. And I will do you a favor and in the show notes for this episode, link to some of those uh, episodes where we talk specifically about kids and money. But I will tell you off the top of my head, the names of some of the guests so you can quickly look for them on the site at so many web so many podcast.com you can look up people like Susan Beecham, Ron Lieber, Rachel Cruz, she's the daughter of Dave Ramsey, Bill Dwight, who uh, is the founder and CEO of famzoo.com. It's an online and mobile banking service to help parents with um, teaching kids good money habits. And uh, there's just a lot of interesting entrepreneurs and authors that I've had on the show that specialize in kids and money. And of course, I've talked about it from time to time as far as like how we've just been talking about money in the house with our kids. It comes up naturally sometimes in conversation, but certainly if you go to the website and you search kids and money, or if you go to the episode show notes for this episode, I'll link out to some of these great episodes. But I, uh, I think it's always important to be thinking about how to you know, educate our kids about money. And Alexander, I don't know if you have any experience with this, any, any best practices? You said you have kids. Yeah, I have four children and I do have a few thoughts. I think the first thing, which is really the most important, it's not strictly financial literacy for kids, but it's best for you and your children's other parent to work through your own legacy around money because in addition to education or lack of it, the thing which influences children and how they manage money the most is if you are a saver or you're a spender or whatever legacy you grew up with, it's very hard not to pass that down. It's kind of impossible unless you've transformed it yourself. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is that um, talking about money can get kind of heavy depending on the age of the children. And so I'm a big fan of using games, especially when we're just talking about financial literacy. So one of my family's favorite games is cash flow. There's a version cash flow for kids, which is for younger children, and then cash flow proper, which is for adults. My kids started playing that at 10 or 12 once they mastered cash flow, cash flow for kids. It was an easy transition. And um, having played that as a family multiple times just completely changed any financial conversation that I've had with my children ever since then. Mm-hmm. And the third thing I'll say, depending on the age of your children, because I think that this is a question, it feels like Beth probably has younger children, but I think it's a real question for people of any age. I myself am 51 and my daughter's 23. She's in graduate school. And one of the best things I've done for her financial literacy is tell her about this podcast, which I did a few weeks ago. And I think she's listened to about 50 of them already because she listens while she's 
going about her business. And um, so for anyone with children, I don't know, 15 and older girls, I would recommend sending them the link to this podcast and see if it speaks to them. Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Alexandra. That's so great. What? Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm speechless. Thank you. That's really kind of you. And I'm I 50 episodes. Wow. That's the thing about podcasting. You can multitask, you know? Can't, right. Can't read she, 50 books. <laughs> she's at graduate school, so she walks from her apartment to her classes, and she used to listen to Audible, but right now she is listening to so many, and I'm really pleased because she's accruing a lot of debt, and I feel like it is absolutely mm-hmm. my responsibility that she has some understanding of what to do when she graduates. And what's her name? Josephine. Josephine. And actually, since we're talking about her, I want to say I've been in various media publications and interviewed in different contexts. But the thing that made her squeal the most was when I told her I was going to be co-hosting with you today. And she said, you know, Farnoosh. Oh, my gosh. Josephine. Hi. Hope you're listening. I bet you're listening. Just want to say thank you so much for your loyalty. It's so encouraging to me to know that someone like you is listening and taking notes and doing well. So if you've got questions, you know where to find me, but I'm always here to help. If you've got questions, send them in for our Friday episodes. Um, Oh, wow. That's so cute. Okay. So now let's go on to Alice considering a move to start over in a new city in the next six months. And at that point, we'll apply for jobs. So wondering if we have any advice on how to financially insulate herself for six months of unemployment um, besides, of course, replenishing an emergency fund. Um, she's, should she increase her 401k contributions right now? Um, yeah, I think that's a good idea. She has a six-figure job and she invests and she ha- has like what um, investments totaling three times her salary. Wow, really good. So I love, first of all, that she's being so proactive, Alexandra, right? Like she's thinking ahead. She's realizing, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to give myself buy some time and money is options. So the more money you have in the bank, the more you don't have to feel like you're rushing to find that job. Just take the job that you get just to pay the bills. That's the beauty of having an emergency fund is you can, you know, kind of do things at your own pace, hopefully. So yeah, I think if you know this is happening, Alice, increasing your investment contributions to your 401k, because that is going to be one of the things that will go away might be a a good idea to take advantage of any kind of match that your employer offers to, of course, take advantage of just the 401k itself, which has allows you to deduct your contribution from your taxable income. Make sure that you are signing up for COBRA or some sort of health insurance, right, to cover you over those six months. And when you even start that new job, the new health insurance policy might not kick in right away. So making sure you do have health insurance would be the other thing. And it sounds like in all, you know, she's doing a really good job. She's got a solid financial foundation. Was there anything else that came to mind for you, Alexandra, as you were reading her circumstance? Well, she sounds super proactive and prepared. And I thought it's probably likely that she'd get a job sooner than six months, but we don't know that for sure. I suppose we don't know what industry she's in. The only thing I would add is that Alice, when you move to the new city, I suggest Um, If you're in a position to do so, maybe live with roommates or maybe live in a less expensive part of the city and just set yourself up to have low living expense, a low cost of living 
during the months before you have a job and don't feel like you need to find the perfect apartment because once you have a job and you know your new salary, then you can move and set yourself up in a way that is more enjoyable for you. And to just think of that first, however long until you get the job is a time where you live a little more lean. Yeah. A little scrappy, a little lean. I like that. I like that advice a lot. Yeah. Because it's going to be a time for exploration, exploration, figuring out what part of town you want to live in. And so if you can find a sublet that's pretty below budget, that would be a great way to save. That's going to be your biggest expense probably is housing, I would imagine. But if you can keep that low, another way to, as you say, insulate, financially insulate yourself. I like that. I like that expression. Okay. Lastly, we have Nicole and she is wondering about buying a condo in a couple of years and saving for a down payment. So she says, with any extra income that I have, would it be better to put more money into paying off my current mortgage faster? Should I save for retirement? Should I save for a down payment? or a combination of all three. In general, I'm not like the type of person who's like, yeah, pay off that mortgage super fast. Because if you have a mortgage and you got this in the last decade, I would imagine the interest rate is not super high. It's probably anywhere from 4.5% to 3%, 5% at the high end. So from a financial standpoint, from a returns standpoint, I'm not sure that's the best place to uh put your money as far as getting a return on your money. But I get it. People like to pay off the mortgage because it's emotionally relieving. Um, but it looks like you also brought up retirement, which signals to me that maybe this is an area that needs more attention. And if it is, then I would prioritize retirement over paying down your current mortgage. And perhaps side parallel pathing saving more for retirement and putting some money down for this down payment. And, you know, this again is a, a, an event that you don't anticipate for happening for another couple of years. So you can be a little slower with the, uh, the amount that you're putting towards the down payment. I would say prioritize retirement and then prioritize the down payment on the home because that's not for another couple of years. I do think the market's going to go down in 2020 or in the next, you know, I, I, we've been talking about it a lot, right? Recession, recession, recession. When we do see the next dip, and maybe it'll last for a little longer than usual, that's actually a good time to get into the market, to get even more bought into the market if you feel like you're, you have a little bit of a deficit in your 401k or other, or other retirement savings vehicle. I'll ask you, Alexander, what are your thoughts on paying off a mortgage fast? Yeah. In this situation, I'd opt for saving for the down payment for a few reasons. One is that if she has... If Nicole has a sizable down payment, that's going to allow her to get better terms on the mortgage when she buys the condo. And the other thing is, and it's not really clear if she's going to be buying the condo in addition to the house or if she's going to be selling the house when she buys the condo. Because mm -hmm. if she's going to be selling the house when she buys the condo, then that mortgage will be paid off then anyway. And right. so I would think having a bigger down payment and a better credit score from having the cash in the bank would be the best option. Hmm. True, could be. I'm just a little bearish on buying right now. I don't know. I don't I don't know where she lives, but you know, for us I we're selling our place and we're moving to the suburbs and um we are going to rent for the first year because we just don't 
know you know how we're going to feel about it and frankly i do think prices are going to continue to drop um and i don't think that prices in the suburbs home prices appreciate very much um over the long run so as far as getting like an roi on our money if i have to put down a lot of money for a house i'm not going to rush to do it um so i think it's it's again you'll have to nicole you you would know better than us as far as you know how the market is where you are but if you are going to sell your current home to buy this condo i would assume that you're going to be taking some equity out and that might be enough for the down payment sometimes right you could use some of that equity to help with the down payment just thinking out loud, you might not have to save on your own a ton. Um, I don't know what your what your uh, situation is with that current mortgage, um, how much maybe the home has or hasn't appreciated, or what equity you do have in it. But once you sell that, you know, remember that's going to be some extra money too that you can play with. That's always fun, right? <laughs> For a little bit, you feel a little rich. You just cashed out of a house, but if you plunk it down into another home. Um, it is going to be tied up. So uh, I love that you say this, Farnoosh, because um, after our assorted circumstances, mm-hmm. we've just been renting. And at first it was a little challenging because, of course, everyone says, oh, you buy a house. Real estate is where it's at. But it just with all the learning we've had with managing our own funds, it's just too much of a commitment. Yeah. And um, it feels so good to rent. I, I look forward to being there. I really do. I look forward to being in that situation. I think it is these days, it's a harder sell, right? Because we don't have as much of the tax break. We don't get to deduct all the property taxes. There's an interest rate cap, deduction cap on the mortgage interest. And, and so that plus um, all the maintenance and property taxes and you know your home's not appreciating that much although I know I get it it's not an investment like you're not investing in stocks but uh, if you're not like a thousand percent sure you want to settle down in this neighborhood um, why rush into it that's all I'm saying you know it's not something to rush into uh, there's lots of flexibility that comes with renting and mobility that comes with renting. And I think that what depending on your life stage, that is worth more, right, than saying, oh, I'm a homeowner. It's nice to say it, but, you know, it's a lot of work. <laughs> comes with a lot of strings attached. Well, and I think being a renter after having been a homeowner, mm-hmm. in our case for multiple homes, I can really feel the lightness that I might not feel if I'd never owned a home. And so it seemed yeah. like a faraway dream. It, it It's a luxury to rent after being a homeowner. Yes. Yes. Well, Alexandra, so nice to spend some time with you. And thank you so much for all of your great feedback and thoughts for our listeners, Nicole, Alice, Beth, Shelby, some strong women listening to this show. I appreciate everybody who wrote in. And what are your Thanksgiving plans? Well, I'm going to be cooking a turkey. I have four children, but two of them stay in college because of how those vacations work. So it'll just be four of us around the table having a simple time. Maybe we'll play cash flow. Ah, or maybe listen to this podcast. No, please don't. (laughs) I would not wish that. I think you should spend all your time together. Thank you for coming on and everybody listening. I will see you back here on Monday and I hope your weekend is so money. 